This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Deacon Matt Woodley and is part three of our Advent 2017 series. So on Thursday at 3 p.m., according to my master plan, I had my sermon written. It was done. It wasn't that good. I wasn't that excited about it, but it was done. And then Friday morning, so the plan was, then I just don't touch it till Sunday morning. Uh, but Friday morning, I read something that was so disturbing, that so rattled me, it kind of blew up what I was planning to say. So this is going to be a little different. What I read was an article in the New York Times. And let me give you the title of the article. Uh, the title of the article was, Has Support for Roy Moore Stained Evangelicals? Some are worried. Of course, Roy Moore was campaigning and running for Senate and lost. The article was pretty fair. I'm not going to talk about the article. I'm not going to talk about Roy Moore. But I'm going to talk about the comments that people wrote about the article. So just sort of at random, I cut and pasted. Really, I took about two minutes on this because comments like this were all over the place on the New York Times site. Let me read you some of the comments. Rocky from Vermont says, quote, so-called evangelicals in this country have been tainted, stained, and forever smeared by their racism, their hypocrisy, their love of American imperialism, etc., etc. Another guy, evangelicals behave in a similar patterns as ISIS and jihadists. These groups have the my way or highway mentality. Another one, when I heard the word evangelical, I automatically think bigot. Tell me what you really think. Somebody named Pedigrees says, the louder they screech about their alleged Christianity, the less Christ-like they behave. And one more, evangelical Christians, in quotes, could, do, could well be the most hypocritical group of Americans out there. They profess to love Jesus, but etc., etc. You get the point. I mean, there were hundreds of comments like this. So reading that, on the one hand, I got to be honest, I was, a little, I was a little offended. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I've pastored four churches. I know a lot of these people called evangelical Christians. And I just, I haven't, I know these people are out there. I just haven't met a lot of them that are just this blatantly mean and hypocritical. There was a New York Times art, uh, columnist named Nicholas Kristof, who's not a Christian, has said some very harsh things about evangelical Christians, who wrote an article about a few years ago about a missionary doctor in the Sudan, who he said is a, just a beautiful example of Christ-like love and sacrifice. And he said, next time you're at a party and people are criticizing evangelical Christians, think about this doctor. I thought it was a really nice article, but I thought, you know, you can find one, I can give you thousands of people like this. I know them. I know their names. I know where they are. I know what they do. I could talk about a lot of people in this church who are living lives of sacrifice and really following Jesus. On the other hand, I think these people are saying something 
that we need to pay attention to. Because they're not just drawing stuff out of thin air. They're not all insane. They're all not just hallucinating. There is got to be some truth to what they are saying. And I want to press into that this morning. Because there is some truth to it. It's kind of a massive public relations crisis for evangelical Christianity. Let me just say it's not new. People have said bad things about Christians for a long time. But in our passage this morning, our gospel passage, God has a, I guess it's not too strong to say, a plan for dealing with this these objections, these stereotypes. And the plan is really summarized in one word, incarnation. The incarnation is the Christian doctrine, belief, that the eternal God who created everything and exists in happiness and unity and community as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, took on flesh and became a human being and walked among us. Bishop Stewart talked about that the last two Sundays. I want to talk about, it's not only something that we deeply believe and love and savor. It is the pattern for how we live our lives. We are called to live incarnationally. We are called to bear witness to Jesus in an incarnational way. In other words, God says, look, you, you got flesh, Christ is in you, he's alive in you, you go walk beside that person. You go walk beside that friend that's angry, that's skeptical, that's cynical, that thinks evangelicals are all hypocrites. You go walk beside them, you love them, you show them Jesus. That is incarnational witness. That's what John the Baptist did in this passage. He was an incarnational witness witness, following in the footsteps of Jesus, Christ, he reflected Christ to others. And he did it with two profound characteristics. Number one, he was vulnerable. Number two, he was captivated by Jesus. And those are the two things we need to recover and practice if we're going to reach and love and win a skeptical, angry culture. Before I get to those two things, though, let me add a little parenthesis, and that is this, a little qualification. And the qualification is this. There are certain things about Christianity, certain things about Jesus that are offensive, that are hard to take for us as fallen human beings. And we cannot do anything about those things. No matter how winsome we are, no matter how kind we are, no matter how nice we are, no matter how sacrificial we are, we're not going to remove the offense of Jesus. Let me give you a couple quick examples right from this text, actually. The first one is simply this. Look at verse 29, and I'm going to be reading out of my Bible, but you have the same thing here that we just read. Verse 29 The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is basically summarizing in one sentence what is at the heart 
of the good news of Jesus. That is that Jesus is the one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The sin is not just sins, but the sin. The sin is our profound bentness and rebellion against God. People say, I like God. I don't have a problem with God. No, we actually all have a big problem with God because we want to be our own little God, small g. We want to find other gods besides the real God. Our biggest problem is not conservative evangelicals. It's not liberals, progressives who have stereotypes about conservative evangelicals. It's not Democrats. It's not Republicans. It's not white people. It's not any other ethnic group. Our biggest problem is the sin that dwells in my heart and your heart. That's our biggest problem. And Jesus came to take that away. I'll say more about that. But first, I just want to say that's offensive. That's hard for a lot of us to stomach. I was talking to my son, Matthew, who's now working as a doctor in a uh, hospital in Papua New Guinea, in sort of the, this very rural area of Papua New Guinea. He said he had a patient, an eight-year-old boy, who actually had two broken femurs. I just wanted to say one broken femur in the first service because it sounds so horrible. He had three, two broken femurs for three weeks. He lived with that. They had to walk three days to find a road. And then once they got on the road, they brought him to the hospital. Take that little boy, eight years old, uneducated, poor, no resources, very simple, we would call very primitive person. Now let's think about a Harvard PhD. He lives in Manhattan. He's got a house in Manhattan. He's got a house in the Hamptons on Long Island. He's sophisticated. He's got advanced degrees, involved in politics, making a difference in the world. Those two people are just as broken and just as much in need of a savior. The kid with the two broken legs, the guy with, who sees no brokenness maybe in his own life, they are just as broken in their soul. That's offensive. Some people have a hard time with that. I kind of have a hard time with that, honestly. Another thing that's offensive. We really like to be in control. It's sort of a Sort of a thing. I like to be in control. I was waiting on a stoplight in East Aurora, coming to work. The person in the big SUV in front of me, the light turns green. They're supposed to turn right or go straight. They just sit there. They sit there for like 45 seconds. I miss the light. It turns red. I'm like, you know, all my neighbors, uh, they're, they're just kind of chilling, just waiting. Okay, he'll figure it out. I get out of my car. I literally get out of my car and I look down at the person. It's like, what are you doing? The light was green. You made us all miss it. It's a control problem. Look at what Jesus says, or look at what John the Baptist says. I love this. Here's his personal life statement. People ask, who are you, John? What would you say? Who are you? Well, I don't know. I'm a pastor. I grew up in Minnesota. I have a master's of divinity, blah, 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 blah. John says, I'll tell you who I am. I am not the Christ. That is who I am. Okay, we're going to do something really African this morning. I didn't do this in the first service, but you people are a little looser. You came here late. You're a little looser, so. <laughs> this is African. This is totally African. 
I want you to turn to somebody and I want you to say, I am not the Christ. Go ahead, do it. Very good. Okay. Doesn't that feel good to say you're not the Christ? It's actually hard because you're saying, I'm not the guy in charge. The apostle, or John, John the Baptist said, he said, verse 27, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then John says in verse 30, this is of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. Jesus, there's a ranking system in God's, God's viewpoint. And you don't rank first. I don't rank first. Jesus ranks ahead of me. That can be very offensive. So there are certain things that we cannot help people with. Those are what I would call, with all due respect, Jesus's problem. He will have to deal with that. And he will. We can trust him to deal with that. But there is our part. There is us. The ways that we have misrepresented Jesus. We have misrepresented his good news. And that's why we need a John the Baptist incarnational witness. I said there's two things about John that just really pop out in this passage. He's vulnerable and he's captivated by Jesus Christ. Two things that we need to recover. First, he's vulnerable. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, and the word became flesh. That's, the word is Jesus. He became flesh. He became a human being and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent with us. He became vulnerable. It's a little tiny baby. Mary could have been holding him and tripped and fallen. And he could have hit his head. He could have got stepped on by a cow in that manger scene. I mean, all kinds of horrible things could have happened. He was vulnerable. So if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be like him, there is no way. We can avoid vulnerability. We will live, following Jesus is a call to a vulnerable lifestyle. We can get hurt. We can get wounded. Jesus said, you could get hated because of me. He said that in all four gospels. You could get killed for following me. There's no way around that. John was vulnerable before God. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God. You know how John, John is a sent man. It's like, I don't know if God asked him if he wanted to be sent. He just said, I'm sending you. You are sent. You're under orders. You're a lower rank. I love you. I value you. But I am sending you. He's vulnerable before God. In verse, chapter 3, verse 30, he said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Do you know, by the time you hit about 27, you're decreasing anyway, right? You've hit your prime. So if you're 19, you got six, what, eight more years. Enjoy them. From that point on, physically, mentally, you're starting to decline. No, that's not hard science. I'm just estimating. It's around that time. <laughs> you start to decline. So do you want to decline with Jesus or do you want to decline without Jesus? 
He was vulnerable before God. He was also vulnerable before others. Living as a witness was costly for John the Baptist. Fast forward to some of the other Gospels. We read the story about how John the Baptist criticized this really powerful political figure named Herod who had um, divorced his wife so he could marry his brother's wife. And John said, you shouldn't be doing that, Herod. And Herod had him arrested. And eventually, he chopped off his head. That's the end of John's life. Not a very happy ending, right? Well, actually it was. Because that's what John lived for. Not to get his head chopped off. He lived to witness to Jesus. To bear witness. Whatever it cost. So he was vulnerable before God and others. The way of Jesus is a way of vulnerability. Bishop Stewart and I were in Jos, Nigeria last 2016, right? We were in Jos, Nigeria 2016, we, which is a city of about a million and a half people. We had a group of people that visited four small villages about an hour outside of Jos. Tiny little villages you can't find on Google, Google Map. You just, they just don't show up. As far as the world is concerned, they don't exist. These four villages had been attacked by uh, Islamic extremists. And the villages had been dismantled, buildings dismantled. Over, it was a coordinated attack on all four villages basically at the same time. 22 people had been confirmed killed. This is still going on in Nigeria, still going on in some of these smaller villages. So at the third village, we were talking to one of the pastors, um, pastor at the third village, and he told us that he got a tip shortly before the terrorists were coming that there was going to be an attack. And we asked him, or somebody in our party, I can't remember, asked him, well, if you knew they were coming, why didn't you get your family and get out of there? He said, I did get my family out of there, but I stayed because I am a shepherd. And a shepherd stays with his sheep. And he just looked at us like, why would anybody do anything else? And we were like, wow, that is courage. That man taught me like a life-changing lesson. I don't think I have that kind of courage. He was vulnerable. I think one of the reasons why our witness can be anemic, timid, cowardly, or defensive, rigid, brittle, is because we're trying to manage, control our vulnerability. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be that kind of witness. But to reach the culture that we live in will require a lot of vulnerability. Jesus-like vulnerability, John the Baptist-like vulnerability, listening to people, walking beside them in their pain, in their anger, in their doubts, in their questions, in their skepticism. It will require the vulnerability of sometimes admitting our sin. See, it's really hard to be a hypocrite if you're constantly confessing and repenting of your sin. It's not that you're perfect and that you won't have any sin, but when you're repenting of it and when you're bringing it to the Lord and you're, when you're asking for transformation, it's really hard to be a hypocrite. It's really hard for other people to perceive you as a hypocrite. 
the vulnerability of just of also being honest and truthful about what the Christian message is. You know, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me but by the but through the Father." That's a very exclusive statement. We believe Jesus said that. We need to be vulnerable enough to say, "Yeah, I didn't make this up, but this is what Jesus said." That takes vulnerability. It also takes somebody captivated by Jesus Christ. The word captivated means to attract and to hold our attention through beauty or excellence. Look at verse 29 again, because I love this verse. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a really key verse in the Gospel of John. It kind of sets the stage for the whole rest of the book in a, in a way. You know, behold, or look at that, is another way to translate it. When somebody says something like that, look at that, they have seen something amazing, beautiful, attractive, excellent, glorious. It could be a sports play, it could be a work of art, it could be nature. I remember about 10 years ago I was standing on a beach in Mexico in Cabo San Lucas and I was standing on, looking over the ocean and I was standing next to this like 4'10 Mexican, older Mexican woman and she didn't speak any English, I know about 50 Spanish words and we saw this whale go by out in the ocean. So just the two of us watching this whale this beautiful blue-green ocean. And we're going, ah, ah, look. Look at that in our spirit. We were saying that. Look at that. Because it's beautiful. That's what John the Baptist is doing. Look at Jesus. Look at that. Look at the beauty of his creation. Verse 3 in John that we didn't have read, but very beginning of the Gospel of John, all things were made through him, talking about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was, nothing, was not anything that was made. Jesus is the source of all beauty, everything beautiful. C.S. Lewis, in his book, his novel, Till We Have Faces, he has one of the characters say, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where the beauty came from. To find the source. The Gospel of John tells us Jesus is the source. That's where it all comes from. That's where all the beauty comes from. I could say more about that, but let me just point to one more thing. There's the beauty of his redemption. The beauty of his forgiveness. Verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice all the thes there. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's not just one of many possible routes. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that fundamental, foundational bentness of our life away from God, the sin of the world. There's no one that's excluded from that invitation. And, and I love the, the Greek there, takes away the sin of the world, is literally, is taking away the sin of the world. He's doing it right now. He did it on the cross, but because of the cross, he can do it now. 
So when anybody turns to faith in Jesus, you turn to faith in Jesus back there. You trust him. He is taking away your sins. You, t- you turn to Jesus now and you ask him to forgive you. He is taking away your sin right now. You know, it's like Wednesday morning in East Aurora. I put out my garbage can. I come back home and a miracle has taken place. The garbage has been hauled away. A couple times I've stayed home. I've watched it happen. See this guy drive up, dumps it in there, drives away. He is taking it away. There are so many ways we can mess up our lives. It's so easy. And look back on my life, there's ways that I have done it. Ways I've done it this week. But he is the one who is taking away our sins. That is beautiful. So John says, look at that. Look at Christ. Early Christian named Augustine said, we cannot help loving what is beautiful. It draws us. The Christian life is like this. It's not try harder. It begins with look. Behold. Look at Christ. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done for you. That begins to draw you in. The things you love get like reordered. Your disordered loves and desires and drives and lusts, they get reordered. It takes time, but it, it can happen. And then from that, we want to obey him. And then from that, we are a vulnerable, captivated witness. We become, as the Apostle Paul said, the aroma of Christ. People see us and they know something about that person. I know they're flawed. I know they got problems, but there's an aroma about them. It's the aroma of Jesus. The story of two writers, Paris, 1954, They were meeting in a small apartment. It was a young writer, 27 years old, a Jewish man. And there was a 70-year-old writer at the end of his career, a Frenchman who was involved in World War II and the resistance. They met together. The young writer was Elie Wiesel, who, Jewish writer who wrote a lot about the Holocaust, what it means to be Jewish today. The uh, French writer was a man named Francois Mariac. They met because Wiesel really needed a favor from this other writer. So he came with sort of an agenda. And as he describes later in a book written much later, he said this, it turned into this favor he wanted to help him get ahead in his career, turned into what Wiesel called an impassioned, fascinating monologue on a single theme, the son of man and the son of God. Every reference led back to Jesus, he said. Well, Wiesel got fed up. I mean, he's a Jew. He didn't, he's not a believer. He's not a follower of Jesus. He said all he ever talked about was Jesus. So he slammed his notebook. He said, you know, I saw my relatives all died in the Holocaust. We don't just talk, 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 talk about that. I don't know why you always have to talk about Jesus. And he ran out the apartment. He was standing by the elevator, just angry, fuming. Suddenly he felt an arm on his shoulder. 
It was Francois. He said, come in, let's talk. They sat down and Wiesel said, suddenly the man I had just offended began to cry, wordlessly, never taking his eyes off of me. He wept and he wept. I shall never forget that first meeting. It was brought to a close by Francois escorting me to the door, to the elevator there after embracing me. He said, you must write about this experience of yours. You must write. So Elie Wiesel wrote a novel called Night. Thin, little, searing, emotional, gripping account of the Holocaust. And he went on to become a world-famous writer. In one of the early editions of Night, Francois Mauriac wrote the preface because Elie Wiesel wanted him to write it. He talked about it. And in that introduction, he talked about this encounter with his friend Elie Wiesel. He said, what did I say to him that day? Did I speak of that other Israeli, his brother, who may have resembled him? The crucified Jesus, whose cross has conquered the world? Did I affirm that the stumbling block to his faith was the cornerstone of mine? This is what I should have told this Jewish child, but I could only embrace him weeping. Now the thing is, is that the things, he said, I didn't say that at the time, but I'm saying it now in this introduction for millions of people to read. So it's not that he's afraid of verbal witness. We have a guy in our church, first service, he was here. He comes from a, a Jewish background. He's still Jewish, but he believes in Jesus as Messiah. And uh, he said to me, you know, the thing that's so beautiful about that story is that it was propositional. He told the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus, but it was so relational. He just, he met with him. He wept with him. He said if it, if it wasn't, wasn't relational, he wouldn't have listened to the content of the gospel. That is the kind of incarnational witness we are called to be. So if you're discouraged, you're disillusioned, you feel like pulling away from the church, my word to you is press in. Press in. Because we need people that are going to be outraged by hypocrisy as Jesus was. But we also need people who are going to press into Jesus. And you know, the, and the first thing you'll realize is how much you need Jesus. How much sin you need to have taken away. And then you will press into the church and realize the church is his body on this earth. It is his body. That's how he works. So John the Baptist, I think he just wants to reach through history, through 2,000 years. He just wants to reach and say, be that incarnational witness in your life with your friends, with your family. Be that vulnerable person. Be that Christ-captivated person. That is the only way you're going to win people. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As a part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.